listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel and this is a podcast in which we discuss policy issues affecting Australia and the world. Now, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. Today, our guest is Australian engineer and inventor, Saul Griffith, climate advisor to the Biden administration and all around clever human who's worked on projects for NASA and several other US agencies. He's also the founder and chief scientist at Other Lab and Rewiring America, recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant in recognition of his service of the world community. His newest book, The Big Switch, Australia's Electric Future and Electrify, an optimist's playbook for our clean energy future, there we go, outline his action plan for fighting climate change, which is electrifying everything. So this is where we get to talk about the actions we can take to change the world, which is a fantastic, and optimistic conversation to be able to have. Saul Griffith, thanks for coming on Find Your Voice. Thanks for having me, Zoe. Great to see you. Now, you say that if I had to choose the country for whom electrifying everything is the best economic win in the shortest amount of time, it's Australia. Why do you say that? Uh, We have at least two, maybe three, maybe four natural advantages over the rest of the world. So first of all, we have spectacular wind resources and we have spectacular solar resources it's written into the national poetry we are the sunburned country so that's a natural advantage we have low population density which actually means that it's very easy for us to produce all of our energy renewably if you're a country like australia you only need a fraction of one percent of our land to do enough solar and wind and hydroelectricity to do what we need if you were china trying to do the same thing you need five to 10% of your land. And so for those countries, they have to think about nuclear as an option as part of the mix. So that low population density helps. We have a general intelligent intolerance of red tape in Australia. Um, and I think a healthy distrust of government, but trust in a, I think a reasonably responsible public service sector, which means um, I think we are on board with working with the government agencies through the, through the public servants, basically, on fixing the regulations to make the th- technologies we need for the future, namely electrification, cheaper than the regulations that we just spent a century writing for fossil fuels, because we've got regulatory crud that needs to be swept away. Shining example of Australia's success is our rooftop solar policy, which is universally popular because now we've, we've successfully made solar universally cheap. Um, so I think really, uh, we're also relatively wealthy and despite some environmentalists narrative that it's healthy to live in high population density cities, actually the big roofs in our sparse suburbs make it particularly easy for Australians to go about their current way of life just to do it with powered by mostly the sun using electric things. Mm. And what about our... Our climate itself, you know, it occurs to me that as someone who's spent substantial time living in the Northern Hemisphere where in winter, you know, it's bitterly cold, sub-zero 
temperatures and you need a lot of energy for heating. So obviously in summer in Australia, it's hot, but we don't have that sub-zero winter climate. So how does that make a difference to how much energy we have to generate? I forgot to mention that. So you've appropriately schooled me in my own story. Um, That is one of our key advantages. So our mild climate is an incredible advantage in two ways. So one is that we need relatively little winter heat. The other is because our the, the technology that is electric, that in theory you can make zero carbon for heating our homes and heating our hot water, is a technology called the heat pump. The performance of those heat pumps is a function of the air temperature. So to try and use a heat pump when it's minus 10 degrees outside, they're not very efficient. They're about twice as efficient if you're doing the, trying to heat the air inside your house if the air outside is 10 degrees. So our heat pumps will perform very, very well throughout the year. Uh, and then the other advantage is because we're not too far south in the world, the generation from our solar systems in the winter is about half of what it is in the peak of summer. Whereas if you're in the Northern US or in Europe, it's one quarter or one fifth. So if we're designing, in fact, an Australian home to have enough air conditioning to get through our hot summer, you're, you're kind of designing the system to have enough energy to get us through the winters, um, even though our solar generation is diminished in the winter. So let's talk about households and and sort of small businesses, if you like. I feel like a lot of the conversation that we have about climate change in this country revolves around coal-fired power stations and sort of large manufacturing. What what does sort of your vision look like for the Australian household and how can households make a difference in, in the way that they buy things, plan renovations and and those sorts of things to have an impact? Usually when you're being interviewed, you try and answer two two questions with one answer, but I'm going to answer your one question with two answers, which is to say, first, why is our historic energy debate and climate debate in Australia about industry and these big things? That's because Australia exports four to five times as much energy in our coal and natural gas as we use in our domestic economy because that can then be pitched as hugely important to the economics of the nation. There has been 20 plus years of a successful culture war in Australia about what we have to lose in in solving climate change. Like, oh, you're going to lose these big export industries for coal and natural gas. Oh, we could lose steel and iron ore, which is hugely important. And that culture war has been very successfully won. So we've never really had the conversation about what do we have to win? And very much the book I just finished writing, The Big Switch, is about what Australians have to win. And um, we will eventually win that all of those games of exports. And I'll come to that. But that's sort of really the technologies are not quite there for those winnings. That's going to happen in the 2030s. the technologies that are here for us to win right now in Australia are in the domestic economy, which is exactly like you say, it's our homes and our small businesses. It's our houses, our cars and our offices. Um, I'm an engineer by nature. So I actually think not just structurally about the energy problem, but I think right down to the machines. So we have 10 million homes in Australia. It'll be 11 million by 2035. There's 1.7 cars in each of those driveways. A lot of them have a natural gas heater for their hot water. Some of them have natural gas heaters for their furnaces or boilers. Um, A lot of homes have natural gas for cooking or propane sometimes for cooking. And then nearly every household has 
1.7 cars running on petrol or diesel. Um, the only way to eliminate all of the emissions of all of those machines from our economy that we know of, and there's no science breakthrough on the horizon to change this, is by electrifying all of those end uses. So that means electric and, and or preferably induction electric for the cooking because they're higher performing, faster, cleaner, easier, better for your health than natural gas. It means heat pumps for your water heaters, which will lower the amount of energy to heat your water by 75%. It's heat pumps to heat your space heating. You might know heat pumps in Australia as your mini split system or your reverse cycle AC. Um, that will lower your heating bills and again, lower the amount of energy to heat your house by half or two thirds. Um, and it means changing the two vehicles in your driveway to two electric vehicles, which will reduce the amount of energy used to move those cars by nearly three quarters. And instead of being 10 to 20 cents a kilometer to drive your car, it'll be one to two cents if you power it off your rooftop solar, two to three cents if you, if you power it off the grid. And really the savings on those, all of those things uh, are what Australia has to win domestically this decade in um, really transforming the infrastructure of our daily lives. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a positive thing. I think we've had 50 years of communications from the environmentalist movement saying if we have less and if we recycle and reduce and reuse, that's the pathway. But this is a little bit different. This is sort of, I think the abundance agenda is a good way to describe it. No, actually the efficiency we really want is electrification. And if we have all the same things we have and electrify them, we can do it with way less energy. We can save a ton of money and because of the structural advantages we just mentioned, Australia gets to be the first country in the world to do this. So obviously there's vast long-term savings to be made for households and small businesses from doing what you're doing, but there's an, an upfront outlay needed at the very least to install rooftop solar, buying an EV, those sorts of things. So what role does government have to play in supporting that end of the process to speed this up? Um, well, I've looked at your campaign headlines and I know that one of the things that is critical for your campaign is equality. And I actually think the issue that we've just touched upon this upfront cost, um, is really fundamentally an issue of equality. I know some fairly well-to-do homes that can afford to go buy two Teslas, put a giant solar around their roof because they have a hundred thousand dollars in cash available to them. And then they get to save all the fuel costs into the future. And so they do even better. I think it should be true to everyone who's listening to understand that you don't solve climate change if only the wealthiest 20% of homes can afford to do it. So you then have to think about, well, how do we help the rest of the electorate, the rest of the population afford the same bucket of goodies? Um, and it has to be about financing. That's how traditionally we pay for things that we can't afford up front. It's the origin of the greatest wealth building aspect of the Australian economy, which is the Australian home. They're becoming less affordable to new families. We need to figure out how to make them become more affordable. And in figuring out how to help them become more affordable families, we need to figure out how to make the houses that are more affordable also be all electric and have these goodies attached to them. So we need to start thinking about those critical appliances as part of the house, not as something that is sort of nailed to the wall and taken with you when you left. Um, but even if we 
figure out to do those things, which I think we can, and there even the banks are starting to play nice and Commonwealth Bank and Macquarie Bank and then new entrants like Bright E Energy are helping Australian homes finance, but that might get us 70, 70%, 80% of households. And then we really need to figure out how the government can help the last 20 or 30% of households participate in these because it, to be very clear, they are the houses under economic stress today. They have excess energy burden, meaning they spend 10 to 25% of their paycheck on energy, whereas the wealthiest households only spend 3%. So we've just got to figure out how to help them also come on this journey because it will say it'll be good for the environment, good for the economy, and very, very good for the, those households economically. Mm. And, you the know, role, I mean, with, for, with... Sorry, and, you know, to tie that to the role for government, we just did the textbook example. Solar cell was too expensive for most people 10 years ago, so the government subsidised the market. They created regulatory rules to generous feedback tariffs uh, for the electricity sold back to the grid. That helped develop that market. It helped train the workforce. It dropped the costs enormously such that now it's just straight up on the economics valuable it penetrated 30 percent of households we need to do that only faster for vehicles for heat pumps for electrifying kitchens and for batteries in homes and in communities that's the government needs to figure out every single regulatory mechanism that makes that cheaper it needs to figure out every single financing mechanism that makes it work for every demographic of household Mm. And, you know, it, 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 what you've said about affordable housing also goes to the issue of having a potentially an entire generation of renters ahead who are then beholden to the actions of their landlords rather than having control of their own destiny on this front. When it comes to savings, household savings, what would households or small businesses be looking at by, say, 2030, 2035, if they were able to action the kinds of things that you're talking about? So if you're an average Australian household in 2022, you'll spend about $4,800 on energy this year. Um, $2,500 or $2,800 on petrol or diesel, $1,500 on electricity and $500 to $1,000 on natural gas, roughly, per household. Uh, if this year, 2022, you went out and you borrowed the money to buy two electric vehicles, borrowed money for the solar cells, et cetera, et cetera, and you're paying that back at traditional interest mortgage interest rates of two or three or 4%, um, it would increase the cost of your total energy bills from that $4,800 to maybe 6,000 or 7,000. The cost of the electric vehicles is falling so quickly. The cost of the household battery is falling so quickly. Solar is still continuing to lower a little bit um, that by 2024, maybe even 2023, financing that package of things will break even and you'll be paying a little bit less than you would be today. They're going to fall so much by 2030 just on the very predictable cost curves that happen when you double and double again and double again how many of these things you make that by 2030 the average Australian household will be saving $5,000 a year. You might ask how do you save $5,000 a year when today you spend $4,800? That's because not only will you save on the cost of energy but the electric car will be cheaper in the showroom than the petrol car so you'll also save money on the car so it might be four thousand dollars saving on the energy and another thousand a year on the cost of owning the cars um by 2035 it'll be you know a little bit better than that but that's far enough out that the crystal ball gets fuzzy but it doesn't matter it's going to be a saving a lot of money mm. and what about the new tech conversation you know it occurs to me that with the solar panels that i'm 
lucky enough to have on, on my own roof, that if I went through the same process in 10 year, years' time, maybe I'd need either less panels to do the same job or the same number of panels that would be doing a more efficient job or producing more energy than the ones that I've got. Where's the development on that front? Solar cells over the last 20 years went from 10 or 12% efficient to about 20%. Um, in the next decade, they might get to 25. So they'll be a little bit better. They might come down in cost a little bit. So they'll be a little bit cheaper. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't all go and do it today because hitting a one and a half or two degree climate target means we all need to go now. So the disingenuous aspect of the technology, not taxes conversation is it's a delay tactic that plays perfectly to the fossil fuel industry that funds the people who use that statement because it just makes everyone, oh, if I wait a few years, if I wait a decade, it'll be cheaper. Yes, that's true, but it doesn't mean it won't already be cheaper if you just start now. So the, the solar cells will get a few percentage points more efficient. Electric cars are unlikely to get much more efficient than they are now. They, they About 80% of the energy that goes into them moves you, which is better than the 20% of a normal petrol car. But there's not a lot of room at the top of 80% to go upwards. Um, the heat pumps will improve. They're improving at about 1% a year. So they'll be 10% better. Um, they're coming down in cost. So everything's getting cheaper. That's really, the performance won't improve enormously. It's the cost that will improve quite significantly. Mm. Talking of targets, so net zero by 2050, are we going to hit that? And is that good enough? Net zero by 2050 is an enormous lie. It's not good enough on the science and then it hides some disingenuous activities and shenanigans of the last two decades by countries that include Australia in the IPCC process. So in the early 2000s, it was apparent that we should be able to make negative emissions technologies, you know, grow biofuels, burn them, capture that carbon dioxide and bury it. And in concept, that's negative emissions technology. To get through succeeding COPs, which was the you know, biannual meeting of the, or the annual meeting of the IPCCs, it was easier to meet countries' commitments by increasing the amount of negative emissions we put in the budget rather than actually just reducing current emissions. This carried on to a ridiculous level to the point now that the two best case scenarios of the IPCC models have 10 gigatons of year of negative emissions built into their model for net zero 2050 um, to achieve in one case, one and a half degree target, in the other case, two degree target. Let me tell you, 10 gigatons a year is the same amount of fossil fuels we pull out of the ground every year globally and we burn it so it creates 30 to 40 gigatons of carbon dioxide, but it's 10 gigatons of coal, natural gas and oil. So we, have, we are relying on an unrealistic amount of negative emissions. To do it, we would have to build an industry as big as all of the world's fossil fuel industries, pumping energy, that, that carbon dioxide back into the ground and hoping it stays there to get the net in that net zero. Even with the net in that net zero, you still need to zero out the rest of our emissions before 2050. So it's sort of net zero 2050 is sort of wrong on two accounts if you care about 1.5. 2050 is too far out and there's far too much net in net zeros. What is it? I think a much easier way for people to understand it is to think about it very concretely in terms of machines. 
There's coal plants that have another 20 years to burn out their coal. There's natural gas plants that have another 30 years. If you bought a hot water last year, heater last year, it'll last 15 to 20 years burning natural gas. If you bought a stove last year, it'll last another 20 years burning natural gas. If you bought a new car last year, it's 20 years of emissions. The machines that exist in the world today, if they all live out their natural life, will take us to 1.8 degrees. That means if starting in 2022, no manufacturer of a car ever makes a petrol or diesel car again, no manufacturer of an appliance ever makes an appliance, a, a, a fossil fuel appliance again, and the same for power plants in that best case, um, without negative emissions, that's 1.8 degrees. So really the only, if, you're, if you care about climate and we all should, particularly in Australia that has one of the most fragile climates in the world, um, we need to as quickly as possible as a nation, as, as the world, get to this point where no one is buying the petrol cars ever again. Norway, for example, 2025, no more petrol or diesel cars in Norway in 2025. Australia should be able to do better than that and should be ahead of that. In Britain, it's 2030. Um, we, should ha we should have policies that phase out natural gas completely from homes. Honestly, it should be 2025 that we're aiming at. Um, there are in the US now a whole bunch of cities and even states where you're not allowed to build a new house with natural gas and they're now going to apply it to retrofit so that if you're doing a reno, you can't put in a natural gas appliance, you have to electrify it. That's the level of ambition you need to hit the climate targets we need. In addition, we could bring that 1.8 down if we also retire coal plants early. Luckily, that's happening by itself because the economics of coal are now bad compared to solar and wind. And we'd also like to retire some of the natural gas early too. That's the honest assessment because there's, there'll be far less negative emissions than we've modeled. So we've just got to get this stuff out of the system as soon as possible, which means electrifying all of the machines at the end use as soon as possible, which means that we have to provide a lot more clean electricity to the grid as soon as possible. So I hate to state the obvious, but I feel like a lot of Australians are pretty exhausted by this climate debate, which has been weaponized in this country for so long. And the idea of making those sorts of changes by 2025 might sound unrealistic to people in our political environment. What do you think? I think it does sound unrealistic in our political environment. Let's just say something extremely obvious. If we have politics as usual for another 20 years, we will have the most unusual, most terrifying climate in human history. So we have to change the politics of this matter. Um, I think the fact that it's now economically in the interest of Australians should make the politics happen sooner. And just, I think it's worth saying, because I think the last statement about those machines might've sounded scary. Like you all have to go out tomorrow and rip out your kitchen. That's not true. It just means in 10 years, when your current kitchen expires, don't buy natural gas. In eight years, when the car you bought in 2017 kicks the bucket, buy an electric car. And if every Australian signs up for that plan of replacing the current fossil fuel burning thing at the end of its lifetime, that's how Australia leads the world and sets the bar for what world's best climate practice looks like. So it doesn't mean you change your whole house next year. It means you change everything in your house over the next 20 years, which is the period which we will also wind down the gas networks, wind down the coal. We'll do lots of retraining. We'll find lots of new regional industries that will f make far more jobs than we're going to lose. Um, so that's the mental model should be, okay, next time 
my car kicks the bucket, replace it. I think that can be sold as a tolerable solution, particularly when the economics are favorable to it, particularly if we could communicate clearly to people, the single largest cause of asthma in your children is because you're, they're in a house that's burning natural gas inside the house. So so-called natural in quotes, clean blue in quotes, gas is, is the leading cause of respiratory illness. Same at the community air quality level, all of the community air quality, water quality will improve when we go to these electric solutions. So it's in our health interest now, it's in our economic interest now. And actually we talked a little bit about the household economics, but I've been thinking a lot lately about community economics. And the reason for that is in the US re through rewiring America, which I started there, we, we run the first electrification caucus in the US Senate. So that's a whole bunch of US politicians who get together every week to figure out how to electrify America to clean it up sooner. At the launch event for that, a US Senator stood up and said, let me be clear, this is gonna be the largest wealth transfer in human history from the traditional providers of energy to the traditional consumers. Let me unpack that for you in terms of the suburb. I'm in a little suburb just north of Wollongong. It has a thousand homes in it, 2,800 people, 800 of those people are little people of school age. Again, very traditional Australian suburban demographics, 2.7 people a household, 1.8 vehicles per household. In 2022, that suburb will send $3.6 million out, immediately leaves the suburb because they buy that much worth of petrol and diesel. We spend $1.2 million on grid provided electricity and 800,000 a year on natural gas in that suburb. If we embrace this new model of electrification within this suburb, um, we would save close to $3.2 million a year in household spend that leaves the suburb immediately. That spending in traditional economic theory will be respent elsewhere in the community at local cafes, buying the services of all the local tradies who are installing all of these solar cells and batteries and et cetera, et cetera. And if you think about how the positive effects of $3.2 million a year being spent in a community of a thousand households, like you can't buy new football fields and new classrooms fast enough to actually spend that. This opportunity to rewire Australia and rewire our communities is going to be an unbelievable exercise in economic renewal of every single community. So, you know, it's hard, it's hard to see why we, sh we should be scared of this. I mean, apart from the culture war that's been so successfully won. So now I'm going to fight a, a fact war on the culture war <laughs> because, you know, we should be able to see a path through here in Australia to make this a wonderful win. Yeah. So just on that fact war then, how do you counter the long-running like, scare campaign, if I could call it that, about the lost export income from LNG and coal and that not having those industries would crash our economy? So let's start with an uncomfortable fact. Our total fossil fuel export economy pr probably does not make Australia net positive dollars. So we export 60-odd billion in coal, we export 15-odd billion in LNG, we import 30 plus billion in oil and petrol, diesel. The imports, we have to pay all of that money out. On our exports, we only really earn the profit margin. The profit margin, they're not terribly profitable businesses, these commodity industries. It's very likely that we earn less for all of our exports than we spend in our imports of oil and petrol. So we're already negative as a nation. So to hold that up is like we're doing great on this 
fossil fuel business is disingenuous. I think something like 70 or 80% of the leading exporters are foreign owned. So it's hardly like that money is being realized in Australia. And economists will say, well, all of, it is, cre however, creating all of these jobs in the regions, and it does create jobs. It, what would create an enormous amount of more jobs is if we were generating all of that energy in the regions renewably with wind and solar, and then using that to process Australia's mineral riches into the minerals and the metals that the world needs to go through this transition. Australia is either the number one, number two, number three, or number four provider and resource owner in the world of all of the critical elements that we need for this energy transition. Solar and wind need an awful lot of steel. They need an awful lot of aluminum. They need an awful lot of copper. Batteries need a huge amount of lithium. We need cobalt, nickel, tin, other rare earth metals. Australia is abundant in all of these things. We currently pull 100 megatons of um, iron ore out of the ground, but we only make one, turn it into one megaton of steel locally. The rest of it is exported overseas. If we turned all of Australia's iron ore into iron or steel domestically and exported it as iron or steel, that would be something like an $800 billion export industry, 10 times larger than our fossil fuel export industry today. So the answer for Australia is to invest heavily in what we do very well, which is mining. That might not sound like the environmentalist dream, but it really is in this case. We invest in our mining, we invest in up-processing our metals into metals domestically. We'll have an incredible advantage globally because we will have the cheapest wind and solar to produce that. If your idea is that we'll make hydrogen Australia, send that to Japan or China and also send iron ore to Japan or China, that steel made there will be twice as expensive as ours because that hydrogen will be three times more expensive as our domestic solar and wind. And half, you know, one third to one half of the cost of steel and aluminum is the energy cost. So if we got the cheapest energy, we'll have the cheapest steel and the cheapest aluminum. That is a huge advantage to Australia. The great majority of those jobs could and should go to the regions um, and is the opportunity for regional renewal. Again, we're now those, you know, that, it, that $3 million a year in a small town that's leaving for petrol and diesel is a huge economic burden on those communities. If that's, you're running your own electric trucks, and trust me, all the electric trucks are coming, every manufacturer is making them now. If you're running your local, all the trucks in your local community on Australian solar, keeping that $3 million a year in those, in those regional towns, that is what is going to make an unbelievable boom time for our, our regions. So, you know, it's going to be a lot of storytelling and it's narrative, but like we just have to have the imagination that Australia can win. We need to do good storytelling around it because people will believe in those. We need to show people by experience. That's why I love this video blogger uh, who's coal miners with Tesla as he takes his Tesla around and gives coal miners a drive. Like, let's give everyone a positive experience of what this is. Let's not accept that the culture war is going to steal your weekend. It isn't. It's going to make it cleaner. It's going to make it more fun. You'll have an electric jet ski to tow behind your electric truck, which will be silent and faster. You know, um, I'm going to, I hopefully I'm, I'm picking the car this year, but I'm hoping to go to summer Nats this year in an electric Monaro. We'll see if we get one. Like, it doesn't have to be about what we have to lose. It has to be about what we have to win. Electric barbecues, electric jet skis, electric trucks, they're all going to be faster, better, funner, cleaner. We've just got to fight the war. Right. And this is the fun bit of the conversation, and I will let you go momentarily. It, it, it's so 
Oh, no, you got me talking about cars and jet skis. I'm really, now I'm ready to get wired up. My, my dad had a Monaro when I was a kid and I, I would love to see that re-emerge as an electric Monaro. Do you um, still have it? <laughs> sadly not. I'm in the market. <laughs> um, you know, I guess just final question, you, you paint that optimistic picture so well and I, I totally agree with you on, and, you know, I think the title of the book, The Big Switch, um, is twofold. One is a sort of physical big... If I can make a terrible joke, I fought with the publisher for a little while, but they ultimately get saved. I wanted to call it Turning Australia On. I thought that was far more appropriate. <laughs> well, it's the kind of title that might fly very well in this country, perhaps not in others. But um, either way, the it's sort of a double-edged title in the sense that it, it it's talking about infrastructure, but it's it, to me it's switching the conversation and it's reframing the conversation, which is what you're doing and, and others. Um, Mike Cannon-Brooks is another one who's, you know, speaking optimistically about this. What's your read on whether that's cutting through? I feel like we are seeing a switch in the attitude of people around this. Do you agree? On the ground talking to real Australians, I feel like it's happening. Because of what I do, everyone I meet wants to tell me a little bit out of guilt what they've just electrified. So, you know, I haven't seen you in 25 years. I just moved back to Australia, but some friend from high school, Saul, it's great to see you. I put in an induction stove last week. Saul, it's great to see you. I just got an electric, I ordered an electric car. So it's happening at some anecdotal level. My parents are electrifying everything in their house voluntarily. Um, My sister now, has all electric lifestyle. She's a single mum struggling in the suburbs, just like everyone is. And she's managed to do it. And now she's loving her lifestyle and it's better. I have friends all over the country in regional towns doing the same thing. I go to towns like Maruya on the South coast in Australia, and I've never seen so much community engagement around an issue. They experienced horrifically the fires. They were already leaning towards solar. There's a lot of people who've had this good experience of cheap solar in that community. Like, it feels like the regions are as ready to go hell for leather on this as, as the cities. So I don't think it's that cultural issue anymore. So I, I like what I'm hearing on the ground. I was amazed, even helped a little bit. You know, Fox Murdoch media in Australia had their about face on climate last year. Some people will say that was cynical. I don't really care. That is internationally momentous that they now believe that climate change is real and that we can address it and that we won't will do pretty well while doing so that being carried on every masthead in australia was an international moment in climate of incredible importance i I believe that they're just sort of testing that messaging for the u.s market probably around the 2024 elections um hopefully not 2028 Mm -hmm. uh so you know i think it's happening at a whole bunch of levels um all of these Climate 200 independents are, you know, they want change. Um, what I see happening at state level here is unbelievably encouraging. If you, if you took a grab bag of what the ACT, New South Wales, Victoria, even Queensland, South Africa, Tasmania are doing on little policies around all of these things, add them all up and they would be a cohesive, aggressive climate policy that the whole world would be impressed by and following. So Griffith, it's been great to chat with you and everyone. We have been privileged to have this conversation. This is the US version of Saul's book, Electrify, and the big switch is the Australian book that is in bookstores as we speak. Saul, you're a busy man, and I really appreciate you taking the time 
to join us on Find Your Voice. I'll be in Melbourne in two days. I'll bring you a copy. I cannot wait to see you. That'll be wonderful. Perfect. Thanks, Saul. Thank you. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214, Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria. 